Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning. It comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. We will be considering chapter 3 this morning and verses 19 to 22. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 22. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 22. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was to put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Thus far is a reading of, of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, every time around this year, people begin to make goals for the new year, don't they? And oftentimes those goals... Uh, surround some sort of weight loss plan, don't they? Right? Everyone, they set some goal for themselves. They want to lose X amount of pounds that year. But what happens? Right? Once that year has been completed and we approach the new year once again, right? you have two types of people at the end of that year, don't you? Right? You have those who, who accomplished their goal and you have those who failed in accomplishing their goal. Now, what separated though those those two groups of people? Well, aside from uh, drive and determination, probably a plan. Right? Probably a plan. Uh, one group just kind of leapt into the new year without any plan on how they were to achieve their goal. How were they going to accomplish it? They didn't take into account how hard it was going to be to accomplish the goal they had. They had no one to help them. Maybe help hold them accountable so that they would remain consistent in their uh, goal and doing all those things that they needed to do to achieve their goal without getting sidetracked. Then you have those who, who met their goal, don't we? These ones had a plan. They put measures into place to help them complete their goal. Maybe they did have a friend or a partner that they were able to, to do this weight loss journey with. To hold one another accountable. To make sure that they were consistent in doing everything they needed to do to achieve their goal. Maybe they established some sort of meal plans. Right? They, they set some, some parameters, some boundaries on what they would eat or would not eat, what they could drink, what they could not drink, places they, they would go and places that they could not go. And they did all this, why? Well, because they, they took their weakness into account. Right? They took their weakness into account. They knew that if they, they leapt into that year all willy-nilly, that they weren't going to reach their target. Because there is so much to distract us. Right? So much you know, good and tasty food as you drive home to distract you. They, they knew they needed a, a plan in place so as to not fall off course. The ones who succeed usually then are those who, who take their kind of natural inability or their vulnerability into account 
and they, they set a plan in place to achieve their goal. Right? Those generally who fail at the end of the year are those who had no plan. Right? Who, who set no kind of parameters or practices in place to help them achieve their goal. They, they did not take into account their natural inability and they just thought, my sheer willpower is going to kind of get me the results that I'm looking for. Now, I use this as an illustration for our text today because I hope it in some way at least helps us to understand the question then that, that Paul brings up in our text today, which is, right, why law? Right? Why, why does the law need to come 430 years after the promise was given? Right? Remember last week Paul makes clear that, that the inheritance uh, does not come by the law, but it comes through the promise. And we've seen how that promise was given to Abraham and to his seed. And we've also seen how, how that promise was no different than the promise given in Genesis 3.15 uh, of the seed of the woman. Only now, with the progress of revelation, God is, has revealed something more about that coming seed. And what He revealed to Abraham was that, Abraham, you are going to be the father of the Messiah. Abraham, that this one who was to bless the nations is going to come from your lineage, right? from your people. Right? So that is God's stated goal. Right? That's the goal that, that God spoke to Abraham back in Genesis 12. But in speaking that goal to him, God also understood the weakness of man, didn't He? Right? Like those who, who leap into the new year with no plan, and quickly fail and fall off track, God understood that the exact same thing would happen to man. Right? Apart from any rule or any plan, that man so easily becomes sidetracked by other things, that, that man so easily would run after foreign gods and foreign women if nothing was put in place to stop it. Right? God knew that they, they needed rules. They needed commandments, statutes to be put in place to keep them accountable so that God's goal would be accomplished through them. And the way that He ensured that His goal would be realized was through setting up a system of reward and punishment in order that He might motivate the Israelites to, to push forward towards His goal until the uh, that goal that He decreed before the foundation of the world. So we see God establishing boundaries that God puts into place this, this system, certain practices that will now serve to advance His cause until that fullness of time comes. And so ultimately, big picture, right? why the law? Well, the law is necessary because of our failure to complete the goals. Right? Our inability to, 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 to achieve what it is we set out to do. The goal being the fulfillment of the promise. Right? The goal being the coming of Christ in the flesh as a descendant of Abraham, in order that he might bless the nations. But now looking then at verse 19, right? that question of why then the law? It's a natural one though, isn't it? Right? It's a very natural one. Right? Because Paul says the inheritance doesn't come by the law. Nor does the inheritance, excuse me, nor does the law alter the promise. And so if the law doesn't change, alter or add to the promise, then the natural question becomes, well then, why the law? We already had the promise. Why add the law 430 years after? 
Why make us follow all these commandments, all these statutes? Was it for nothing? Right? Was it all meaningless? And so this is what Paul addresses then in our text today. Right? Preemptively answering the objection that he knows that Jews would have. And so this leads us to our first point this morning. And we'll call this first point protecting the promise. Protecting the promise. If you want to know why the law, Paul says, the law was established to protect the promise. Okay? The law was established to protect the promise. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now perhaps the first question we ought to ask is what law is Paul speaking of? And what law is Paul speaking of? That word law can be used in a, a variety of ways. Uh, but the law that he's speaking of is the Mosaic law, isn't he? He's talking about, in context here, the Mosaic economy. And so the, the law here is no different than the law that he references in verse 17. Right? Look at verse 17. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Right? And so it's, in verse 19, he's, it's continuation of that same thought. It's that same law. So he's talking about the Mosaic Law. And when we say Mosaic Law, what are we, what are we referencing? Moral law. Ceremonial law. Judicial law. It was one system intertwined in the Mosaic Covenant and it stood together. The next important question, though, to ask is, is who is this covenant made with? Because that gives us an indication of why the law was necessary. Right? Who was the covenant made with? Well, it was made with, with natural born Jews. Right? Jews by descent. So that it was not faith that gave one title to the covenant. But rather what gave you title to the covenant was who your parents were. And if you were a boy, if you were circumcised right on the, on the eighth day. It was only after one was already in the covenant that they were called to, to circumcise their hearts. And so what does that mean? Well, what it means is that the covenant ultimately is made up of a lot of people who have no faith, right? Who are not believers, right? There are a lot of people within this covenant who do not believe in God. And so what do we know about the nature of, of natural man? Well, the nature of natural man is rebellious, isn't it? We are lovers of self. We are desirous of our own gain, desirous of our own pleasure. Right? Natural man is set up under a dominion of darkness. And we have this sin that we are in bondage to, that we are unable to get ourselves out of. Our human tendency is to then rebel against the purposes of God, isn't it? Right? By nature, we don't want to follow God's goal and God's purposes. We want to rebel against it. Right? Our heart by nature is evil. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And so why the law? Well, the law was needed because Israel was a nation of sinners, many of whom were unregenerate. And so He covenanted with them and He gave them this law in order to insulate the people. Right To keep that nation from, from going its own way in all different directions. To keep them 
from intermingling with, with pagan nations in order that they might not spoil the promised seed. He did this so that they might not destroy Abraham's line through intermarrying with the Canaanites and other pagan nations. We have an example of this stated purpose in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and in verses 3 and 4. There we are told, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and He would destroy you quickly. So we also see that in this command, um, there is a necessity for the law because the law restrains man's transgressions as well, doesn't it? I mean, think about our own nation. We have laws in place so that man can't be as, as evil as man wants to be, right? Because there's a, a threat of punishment. And so in our own nation we have laws. So we understand why, why God also puts laws in place to deter sin or to, to lessen sin by the threat of punishment. Also, though, He puts these things in place to encourage obedience right? with the reward of long life in the land of Canaan. And these same things, though, the same methods here that God uses... Those of us who are parents, right, we understand what God's doing because we do the, the very same thing ourselves. Right? If we want our child to, uh, to do something maybe uh, important at home or at school, we might say to them, if you do this and you do it well, you will get a reward. Uh, if you don't do it or you put no effort into it, you don't try it all, this is going to be your punishment. And why do we do that? We do that because we, we want to motivate them because we know by nature... Oftentimes they're liable to do the opposite of, of what they ought. And as parents of children, we also know what it's like to tell our children and establish rules. You can't go by this person's house. Or I don't want you around this group of people. Why? Because they're going to lead you into sin. And so we want to, we want to keep our children back from that. Right? So we know what it's like to, to insulate our children, don't we? In order to, to keep them away from those who would deter them from reaching those, those goals that we as parents might have for our children. You know, long life, uh, uh, career, family, children, all those things that, that we might want of our children that perhaps they would not have if they went astray, if they got involved with the wrong, with the wrong crowd. And so we need to see that this is the same thing that God has done with Israel. Right? He chose them. He set them apart. He gave them laws that would keep them apart from other nations to fulfill His purpose that He had for them. Now, what is also though important to understand about this system, the Mosaic Law, is that it was not intended to go on for forever. Right? The Mosaic Law was temporary. It was not meant to endure forever. It was separate to the promise and it was subordinate to the promise. Paul says it was added because of transgressions. And here's the important word, until. It was added because of transgressions until. Which means there's a, there's a stopping point. Until when? Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Which means, right, the Mosaic Law was only in force for a particular period of time. But for what purpose? Well, Paul tells us to preserve the line from which Christ would come. And once He came, that law served its purpose and was no more. 
So we need to understand what Paul is saying is that the Mosaic law served the promise. Right? That's the purpose of the law, to serve the promise. And once the promise came, the Mosaic law was not to be observed anymore. This explains Paul's statement in a text like Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, of course, many will say, because of passages like that and others, that, uh, that we who believe no longer are under any law whatsoever. Uh, but we also need to understand that that's untrue. Uh, yes, we are not under the Mosaic law. Yes, we are not under Jewish law. right? The judicial, the ceremonial, and the moral law of the Mosaic covenant. So that the judicial law and the ceremonial law, uh, which were given to a particular people for a particular time and for a particular purpose, is no more once Christ comes. But neither is the moral law given in the Mosaic Covenant. And this is what I mean by that. That the Mosaic Covenant, even the moral law in it, is given to the people as a covenant of works. Right? The moral law, along with the judicial law and the ceremonial law, were all the covenant of works given to the people, which was made obsolete with the arrival of Christ and the establishment of the new covenant. But unlike the judicial law and the ceremonial laws, which were positive ordinances, right, which, which mean that right, God spoke them to a particular people in a particular covenant to serve a particular purpose, the moral law is binding on all. Even believers today. Why? Well, because the moral law is, is from creation. Right? The moral law is prior to the giving of the Mosaic law. Uh, so the, the moral law goes on for perpetuity. Right? This is why this is why Cain knew that killing his brother Abel was wrong. He knew thou shalt not murder, even though the commandment had not yet been given in tablets of stone. Right? They understood these things. Right? The moral law reveals to us God's will for mankind. And it reveals to us that one standard for all of mankind. It's the moral law that reveals what God expects from all people everywhere. That was not true of the ceremonial law and the judicial law. It is only the moral law that shows us our duty to God and our duty to man, which all people everywhere are bound to obey. But now it's under the new covenant as believers that we, we no longer do it to obtain life by it. Right? No longer do we obey the law of God because we are scared that He will curse us and cast us out of the land like the Israelites did. Right? No, now we, we obey God's law because we love God. Right? We fear God as our Heavenly Father. We love our neighbor. And so out of a deep sense of, of gratitude for what God has done for us, we want to obey His commands. We want to glorify Him in our body here on earth. And brothers and sisters, we are able to do it because we don't belong to a covenant like the Mosaic Covenant anymore. We belong to a better covenant based on better promises with a better mediator. And a part of those promises is what? That, that He will give us a new heart. Right? That He will indwell us by His Spirit and God Himself will cause us 
to walk in His ways and to delight in His statutes and commandments. Now this Mosaic law, then Paul goes on to say, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now this might be uh, difficult initially to understand because if we go back and we look at Exodus and we, we read about the giving of the law, isn't it given by God? It's not given by angels. Right? It's given by God. But why does the New Testament then affirm uh, this understanding? Why does, why does Stephen in Acts chapter 7 say that the angels gave the law to Moses? In Acts chapter 7, verse 53, Stephen says, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. How do we square that away then with, with the book of Exodus? Well, I think all that trouble is alleviated when we consider in what manner it can be said that the angels uh, gave the law. It would be similar to the manner in which it can be said that you and I and all believers will, will judge the nations. Scripture tells us ultimately Christ is going to judge the nations. But how will we judge them then? Well, we're going to judge them along with them. We're going to be there by Him. We're going to be approving of God's judgments. We're going to be amening His judgments. That's the same way that the, the law was put in place by the angels then. Right? As God is giving the law, the angels are there with Him. And they are approving of God's commandments. They are approving of everything God decreed and, and, and put into place for the Israelites to observe and to do. And so they are approving of it. They are amening it. In fact, this is what David says in, in uh, Psalm 68, verse 17. He says, the chariots of God are twice ten thousand. Thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So he's saying, so that their, their God is accompanied by the angelic hosts. And they put into place the law, right, by giving it to Moses, who is that intermediary. Right, that word intermediary simply means mediator. Right, who is the mediator of the Mosaic Covenant? Right? It's Moses, right? Obviously Moses. Moses is the one who was given the law and who was to deal between God and the people. Uh, perhaps the more difficult statement is found in verse 20. There we read, Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I think that's a much more difficult uh, verse to understand. Now, the fact that an intermediary implies more than one is obvious, doesn't it? It's a, me a mediator has to mediate between at least two parties. But why does it say an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one? And what in the world does it have to do with, with what Paul is addressing here in our text and what he's been addressing in chapter 3? Well, the answer that I think makes the most sense is that what Paul is saying, remembering that, that Paul is talking about the law and the promise that God has both given. I think that what he is saying is that the law was given to the Israelites by Moses as mediator, but he was mediator to the God who is one. And by one, he's speaking about the one mind of God, the one will of God, right? God's immutability. So that Moses was the mediator of the one who is the same forever. The one who is the same, who, who does not change. It is this one who gave Moses this law. And so what Paul's saying is, then can the law that God gave go against the promise that God gave as well? 
And the answer is certainly no. Right? That's what he's trying to say. God is one. Right? God is of one mind, one will. God is immutable. He does not change. And so can His promise and His law be inconsistent with one another? And his answer is no, of course not. It only appears to be that way because of the way that the Judaizers are using the law. Right? They're using the law in the manner which it was never intended to be. Right? It was never intended to be the way by which we receive the inheritance. Right? The inheritance always came through promise, not the law. Right? The law was given to serve the promise, to serve his, his one purpose, to protect the promise. The law was a means of accomplishing his goal, since both law and promise have the exact same author. Right? That's what, that's what he's saying. And I think that interpretation makes the most sense and aligns most naturally with what comes right after it. Now look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So what's Paul saying there? He's saying, the God who is one never gave two different ways to life. There has always only been one. And so the law is not contrary to the promise because the law was never given to make alive. That life only comes through the promise. Right? The law is always subservient to the promise. As we've seen thus far then, it's the, it's the law that has been given to protect the promise. But there's another reason for the law that Paul gives. Look with me at verse 22. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is going to take us to our second and our final point this morning. We're told it protected the promise the law. And now we are told that it is given to, to really muzzle man. And that's going to be our second point. The muzzling of man. The muzzling of man. Paul says that the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Well, what Scripture is he talking about? Right, much like that word law, right, the word Scripture can be interpreted in a variety of ways. But staying consistent, I think that the best way to understand the Scripture that he's speaking about is to understand it as the law. Right? That's, that's the Scripture uh, that, 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 um, that he says uh, imprisoned everything under sin. It's, it's the law that does that. Um, that word imprisoned also, though, means enclosed. It means confined. But that language of the law imprisoning I think is quite illuminating and I think it really unpacks more about the law for us, helps us to, to better understand the law. Right? Because Paul describes the law's purpose as being like a judge, doesn't he? Right? The law's purpose is to be like a judge and, and sin is like being a prison. So that the law imprisons or encloses all under sin because the law pronounces our guilt. Right? It stops the mouth of every single person leaving no way of escape as we are all captive to sin, right? We are all under bondage to sin. Now, it's this law that determines what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong, what is sin, what is not, right? It judges, right? The law judges, and its effect is that it shuts up man, 
right? To muzzle someone is to prevent someone from speaking. Right? That's what it means. Perhaps you've watched the, the news and you, you've seen a criminal kind of wheeled into the courtroom and maybe he's strapped down and he has something covering his mouth because he's been disruptive maybe in prior days and so they, they wheel him in in this manner so that he cannot speak, right? He cannot interrupt the judge anymore. Well, Paul says that this is the law's intention. It is to show us our miserable condition. In doing so, no one will be able to open up their mouth against it. Right? No one can, can plead innocence or provide any excuse. It, it silences us all. That's what Paul says. This is what Paul also says elsewhere in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul says that the law's intention is to disclose to us the nature of our sin. Right? Sin, which all people though are under. Right? Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, And so death spread to all because all sinned. So that includes not only Jews, but the Gentiles alike. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Those who have have sinned without the law. He's talking about sinning without the, the written law. They didn't have the privilege of having the tablets of stone. But they still had the law written on their hearts, didn't they? That's his point then in, in verse 14 of chapter 2. right? For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, that is the written law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So what does this show us? It shows us the, the predicament of of every single human being who has ever lived. Right? Not just the Jewish people who have the written law, but all people. Right? It tells us that the law is, is every person's judge. And because we have all sinned, we are all shut up by the law. We are silenced. We are imprisoned under it. We are all in our jail cells, right? waiting for the day of execution. Right? None of us able to to grab hold of the key, unlock the cell door, and get ourselves out. It's this prison language, I think, that, that really shows us the, the, the great trouble that, that, that man is in. Right? No prisoner has the ability to free himself before his sentence is up. And what Paul is doing here, using this prison-type language, is, is showing us the, the reality that every unrenewed person is in. Right? Which means that there is nothing that we can do to set ourselves free from the bondage of sin. Right? There is nothing that we can do to, to undo the, the chains that imprison us. Right? Sin reigns in us. Sin dominates us. And we can't escape its power. Right? This is why it's utter folly to think that, that there are works that we can do to cause God to show His favor towards us and to accept us as righteous in His sight. Because by nature, right, Paul tells us that there's nothing that we can do that is good. Right? We are evil trees and all we can bring forth is evil fruit. 
Right? The best work of the unbeliever is still a, a, a spiritually dead work. But let us see, though, what Paul is highlighting here. That the, that the law's purpose is never to give life. But the, rather, or instead, the law's purpose was to convict. Right? That was the purpose of the law, to convict. To bring about conviction. To, to show transgressions. To show us how unclean you and I are. Why? So that we would not seek comfort and refuge in the law, but that we would seek comfort and refuge in the promise. And so let us see that the law prepares hearts for the promise. To receive the promise, but we must receive that promise as a gift, one that cannot be earned. This is what Paul says in, in verse 22b. Right? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Why is everything imprisoned under sin? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Right? See again that this is not a promise that can be earned. But rather we are told this is one that is given. See also that what Paul is saying to the Judaizers and to every one of us here. Right? That you are justified by your relationship to Christ. But not by birth. By faith. Right? You are justified by your relationship to Christ. But not if you are carnally His kin, but rather if you are spiritually in Him. right? The law closes then up the sinner's every way to find acceptance with God through obedience in order that when the Gospel comes, they might see that it is Christ alone who is the only one that can free them from their prison of sin. right? That Jesus is the only way to have that prison door unlocked that you might be freed that you might have your execution date rescinded, that you might be able to stand in the courtroom of God being declared innocent right, based on the merits of Christ and being given salvation and everlasting life in Him. <coughs> Excuse me. Christ alone is the end of the law. Right? The law was a schoolmaster until Christ came, but He brought an end to it. How? By being its fulfilling end. Right? By, by doing everything and accomplishing everything that the law had spoken. Right? He brought a righteousness that the law could not give. His righteousness being an, an everlasting righteousness and the only righteousness that will ever justify a sinner before the eyes of God. But it's a righteousness that only comes, not through works, but by belief. By believing in Jesus. But in order to believe in Jesus, in order to come to Jesus this way, what Paul tells us is you must first have knowledge of your sin. Or you first have to have knowledge of your sin. Christ came to call sinners into the kingdom, not righteous people. Right? He came to invite sinners to receive the promise, not people who thought that they were good. But this must mean that you have to see yourself as a sinner. A sinner who cannot obtain righteous standing before God based on your works. Or you have to see yourself as someone who has no good thing in you by nature. This is the only way that Christ will be your Savior. And then we can trust though God's promises, can't we? We can trust His Word, for it's, it's His promise. It's not ours, it's His promise. And so He surely will bring it to pass. No one will thwart it. And we've seen that throughout the history of of all of Scripture, don't we? That the Israelites' disobedience could not throw God's plan to bring the Messiah through their line, could it? Right? The devil could not throw God's plan in trying to get Jesus to, to accept all the kingdoms of the world and serve Him. 
Which also means what though? That if God's purpose is, is your salvation, then it also means that there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Right? If God's purpose is, is your eternal glory with Him, then there is nothing in this world that can pry you out from your Father's hand. Right? Everything that He has determined to do, He will do. And yet He will do so oftentimes through the use of means, won't He? Right? The, the law was a means He used to serve His purposes. Right? The law He, he used to, to serve His purpose to establish a people and keep them together for a time until the Savior would come from them. Right? The law continues to serve the purpose of convicting sinners by bringing to remembrance your sin so that you would turn from yourself and turn to Christ who is able to grant spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. And so, brothers and sisters, as we draw uh, to a close this morning, I would say to all of us that we must ask ourselves this day that does the, does the hearing of the law make you feel yourself to be a most miserable sinner? Does the, the hearing of the law make you feel yourself to be a most miserable of sinner? And if it does, Thank, thank God. Right? Thank God. Because what that demonstrates is that, is that He has not prepared you for damnation, but rather He has prepared you for salvation through His Son. For Christ saves none but those who see themselves in that way. And then, brothers and sisters, by faith, rest in Him. Right? Receiving the gift, receiving the, the blessing that Christ came to bring for all who believe. Blessings which the law could never provide. Blessings like pardon of sin and everlasting life. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, We thank You, Lord, that You have uh, brought about different means in order to accomplish Your goal and Your purposes. Uh, We thank You, Lord, that um, you have uh, given us perhaps families where we heard the law and the gospel, or that you have brought us to a church where we have heard the law and the gospel. That these are are the means that you use to accomplish your purpose in our own individual lives. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we see your sovereign hand everywhere and in everything. Uh, we are so thankful that that and comforted by the fact that whatever your word says will surely come to pass. It will surely happen. Uh, for you are immutable and omnipotent, that you do not change, you shall not repent, and no one will be able to stop you from, from bringing uh, creation to its consummation, uh, which is the ultimate goal, uh, so that we might uh, dwell with you in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And so, Lord, we pray that You would help us to to consider the law more often. Uh, consider, Lord, what it, what it has done for us, what it continues to do for us, uh, how important it is in our lives, how we must not forsake it or forget it. But also, Lord, we pray that You would continue to remind us of, of the promise, that You would continue to direct our gaze towards towards Christ, 
and that you would help us, Lord, to be a, a thankful people, uh, realizing that, that Christ is the end of the law for those who believe, that, that Christ has fulfilled uh, the law and its demands, and he has done it in our place. Uh, he has taken the penalty that we deserved in order that we might uh, be clothed in his righteousness and that we might one day be able to enjoy eternal felicity with you in glory. And so, Lord, we come before you this morning and ask these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.